Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. If I might have your attention. It's, it's back to serious, deep, intellectual discussion and fun. Uh, our speaker for this evening is a longtime friend, is a, a writer, journalist, a blogger extraordinaire, uh, Brian Doherty. He's a historian, author of a very, very fine book here, Radicals for Capitalism, which is a history of the modern American libertarian movement. He's also the author of Gun Control on Trial, uh, Ron Paul's Revolution. He's a senior editor at Reason Magazine. And I should also point out, was an intern at the Cato Institute. So this is uh, very important for all of the younger folks here to know. I should mention that that was actually the high point of his career. It's a little bit of a gentle slope downward uh, after that. Uh, but he was also the managing editor of Regulation Magazine uh, at Cato. So to speak with you this evening on liberalism, libertarianism, conservative and conservatism and socialism, Brian Doherty. Hi. Uh, Thanks for listening. That's a very big topic, that title that Tom gave me, and you could spend a lifetime studying those four philosophies and how they interconnect. I'm not going to make you do that tonight. Uh, I am going to mostly focus on my favorite of the four, uh, libertarianism. I'm going to explain how it arose from the original liberalism, uh, what we call classical liberalism today, how that sort of degenerated into modern liberalism, and how both socialism and conservatism uh, were in some ways reactions uh, to the fading of classical liberalism, and, and I'm also going to try to tease out the threads within socialism and conservatism that actually are libertarian at heart. Um, now, if you think about how we're all here right now, um, someone owns this property, we're going to presume they own it justly, um, they decide to sell the service of lodging and hospitality, we all came here, you know, some of us flew on planes, some of us drove on cars. Uh, people were there along the way to, to sell us the fuel it took to get here. Uh, we're all here because we want to be here. Um, all of that is classical liberalism in action. Classical liberalism is the way the modern Western world works at its best. And, you know, Tom was alluding the other night, last night, to how, how weird... Uh, hardcore classical liberalism seemed to most Americans 30 years ago, but it shouldn't feel weird, and we should not feel weird about it, because our philosophy is the philosophy that built the West. We, we are living at its best in a classical liberal world. There's a, a great quote about this, which I learned from Mr. Tom Palmer in his uh, great book, Realizing Freedom, which I believe all of us got copies of, from the journalist... Uh, Fareed Zakaria, yes, which I am going to, uh, which I'm going to uh, read you now, because um, I think it puts it very well. He said, classical liberalism, we are told, has passed from the scene, and indeed we are told that. Um, but if so, its epitaph will read as does Sir Christopher Wren's engraved on the monument at St. Paul's Cathedral. If you were searching for a monument to classical liberalism, just look around. 
This world we live in, as Zakaria said, is secular, it is scientific, it is democratic, it's middle class. Whether you like it or not, and we like it, it's a world made by liberalism. Over the last 200 years, liberalism, with its powerful ally, capitalism, has destroyed an order that has dominated human society for two millennia, the old order of authority, religion, custom, land, and king. And from its birthplace in Europe, liberalism spread to the US and is now busy remaking most of Asia. And all of that is a very, very good thing. Um, now, some of the ideas uh, that fed into classical liberalism can be found in bits and pieces uh, throughout human history. Uh, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, you had kings who were understood not to be divine. There was an understood separation of, uh, of religion and state. There was a priestly case. The king did not necessarily decide his own power. In classic Greek literature, there are wonderful dramas based on dramatizing the notion that there is a higher law beyond just the law that kings make. Uh, the Christian tradition intellectually has long had room for the notion of a natural law and natural rights tradition that recognizes discoverable rational standards for human behavior. It doesn't just all come, you know, laws. This notion that law is just something that lawmakers make, that's an alien concept, uh, really, in, in, in the Western tradition. Um, but, you know, it, it's something that we're dealing with now. But our tradition, uh, you know, is really what built the West, but it came to its flowering as, as not just a set of notions, but a coherent tradition in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, and the United States became, I will argue, the greatest flowering of classical liberal ideas in government. And studying uh, intellectual history, because this is gonna be a story I tell of, of a, a decay and a loss of a certain set of great ideas, but it's encouraging for those of us who actually are interested in changing the ideology of the world to see that it's changed before. It's changed for the worse, but at least that gives us evidence that indeed it can change. We've seen it change and we can change it back because what it is, what ideology is of course, is the thoughts in individual minds. Individualism is one of the, the great uh, tenets of classical liberalism and, and by doing things like we're doing this weekend, by trying to learn the ideas, the philosophies, the legal uh, notions of liberty and where it comes from. We, we are being that change in the world and we can go forward and make that change happen in others. There's an economics metaphor I like for this. It's like we look at the ideology of the world and we feel like it's a thing that we're faced with. Just like when we look at prices, we feel like, oh, a price is something we're faced with. But if you study economics, you understand that prices are simultaneously a given that helps us make decisions and also something that changes based on the decisions we make. And the same is true of the ideology of a culture, so you should never look at it as a monolith that you have no way of changing. Um, and in a certain sense, uh, I would argue that the very notion of social and economic change is itself a legacy of classical liberalism. Uh, this belief in the power of ideas to affect political and social change, because classical liberalism was the force that broke apart all the ancient restrictions of privilege, inheritance, guild, and king, um, that, that had sort of kept the world trapped, and the world is as rich as it is because liberalism did manage to change that. It's not, of course, all about ideas. There are certain things happening in reality that help this change. I'm actually relying a bit in my understanding on this on Mr. Tom Palmer, uh, one of the great uh, scholars and educators about the classical liberal 
tradition. Uh, also in his book, Reclaiming Freedom, he wrote quite a bit about the historical context in which a lot of this uh, took root, the, the rise of a commercial class, uh, the extension of property ownership to a wider class. Most of this is happening in England, by the way, which is the, the root of these ideas. Um, Henry VIII uh, divided many large estates. Church land was dispossessed. A, a new class arose, a middle class, a commercial class, a trading class, a landowning class that wasn't just uh, an aristocratic landed gentry. And a new set of ideas arose to sort of su support and buttress uh, these new people and their new role in life. Um, and the, 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 one of the core ideas behind this was the notion that we could discover with our reason things about human nature that would tell us things about the nature of man's relation to the state. Uh, th this meta idea, which I think makes it makes classical liberalism remarkable as a distinctive outgrowth of the general Western Enlightenment tradition, is that critical reason can be applied to human behavior. And what you get to when you think about that is the notion of individual liberty. And there are certain things that arise from that. Um, if you believe that people should have liberty, you tend to believe in tolerance, the notion that we let people think what they want. We let people believe what they want. We let people say what they want. And the notion of dissenters in England, dissenters from uh, the Anglican Church, was, was one of the, the key uh, things in the world uh, that helped these ideas arise. If you believe in liberty, then you recognize property. You recognize property as the great engine of eliminating and managing social conflict over the things of the world. You, you can't be acting free in the world if you do not have a place to act free and things to act free with. Um, so if you have liberty and you have tolerance and you have property, uh, this also leads to another of the great notions of classical liberalism, free trade and free commerce. You let people work in the professions they want. You break apart these old guild restrictions. You let people trade with who they want, do with their property what they want. Free trade is, is not only in and of itself one of the great engines of cosmopolitanism, peace, other important elements of the classical liberal package. It's also a constituent part of liberty and autonomy writ large. You know, Adam Smith, of course, is one of the great leaders in spreading some of these ideas of free trade. Uh, liberal politicians actuated uh, these ideas in the 19th century with the Anti-Corn Law League, one of the great inspirational stories of ideological victory, uh, uh, which I recommend uh, you read up on. Uh, you start to understand that you know, those, those free trade arguments, when you root them in economics, seem like they're based on mere efficiency. But uh, in the original classical liberal tradition, though it understood the value in increasing wealth of free trade, it wasn't necessarily about efficiency. They tended to treat it as a moral principle. Free trade was a constituent part of liberty. Uh, Benjamin Constant, a great French uh, liberal of this tradition, uh, had a, a great quote about why it might be better to consider liberty in moral terms than merely utilitarian expedient terms. Uh, he once wrote, tell a man you have the right not to be put to death or despoiled, and you give him an entirely different sense of security than if you just tell him it's not useful that you should be arbitrarily <laughs> put to death or despoiled right now. And I always like that. Um, so tolerance, property, free trade, all arise from liberty. The, the, the stuff is, is, is a 
tightly knit skein of ideas, and they're all great tools for peace, another of the great values of liberalism, which allows for richer, better human lives. Um, other political philosophies that I'll be discussing uh, tend to not be so conducive for peace because they tend to pit interests against one another. They tend to be ones of conflict. Socialism, as we'll discuss, tends to be something that tells you that you, in certain respects, have to serve the interests of others, or perhaps that other people are there to serve your interests by force. Classical liberalism, as my example at the start, I hope, made clear, is everyone serving each other and making each other richer uh, by free choice. It's a, it's a philosophy that does not require conflict in a way that uh, most other philosophies do, including modern liberalism. Um, now, this love of liberty leads to some other principles or constitutive ideas about the classical liberal tradition. Uh, one of them is skepticism about power, coming with that as a desire to limit power in general and to set countervailing powers against each other to hopefully check themselves. You can see this idea actuated in the structure of the U.S. Constitution, which, as I said, is a, a remarkably classical liberal in its formation. Um, it also leads you to the idea that a healthy civil society, completely separate from government institutions entirely, is vital to a healthy culture and society. And another idea that arises from the privilege of privileging of liberty is the rule of law and equality before the law. Built into that is a practical idea of ending guild and monopoly privileges that locked people out of certain occupations. Now this embedding of the notions of liberty and free markets in this larger order of peace, tolerance, variety, and autonomy is very alive in people who call themselves libertarians today. It's less alive in people who call themselves liberals and people who call themselves conservatives, even though conservatives, uh, for reasons I'll get into shortly, do tend to carry the torch rhetorically for a lot of classical liberal beliefs because conservatism in the modern American sense arose mostly in an attempt to conserve things about the American tradition, and the American tradition is a classical liberal tradition. And in all this valorizing of liberty um, and, and those other ideas that arose from that, uh, what ended up happening overall is that society shifted from a society of status where you were locked into certain things in life because of how you were born, became a society of contract, a society that really allowed far more people to flourish, to get rich. Um, as the great 20th century classical liberal Ludwig von Mises said, the social order created by the philosophy of the Enlightenment, which is what he called liberalism, uh, was one of supremacy to the common man. And when you realize that, that sort of links us into socialism in an interesting way. Um, classical liberalism began to shift uh, generally from about 1880 to about 1940 uh, for reasons that I will get into in a minute. But a as that started to happen, socialism arose um, as a sort of counter and rival to it, um, and obviously different in so many ways. But I would argue that socialism actually, uh, as modern libertarians from Milton Friedman to F.A. Hayek have recognized, the socialists were in some senses, trying to do the same thing that the classical liberals were trying to do. They, they, they thought that they wanted to make a world that was better for more people. They thought they wanted to crack certain illegitimate privileges and powers 
in the market. The solution uh, that they chose is a completely wrong solution uh, for reasons I'll also get into shortly, but uh, um, if you realize that they arose historically from a time when classical liberalism had gone a great way uh, toward making more people richer, the socialists sort of thought that they could push that along by the power of the state. They, they were wrong in that. They, they didn't understand uh, the, sort of the full context of liberalism, uh, but they meant well, or at least they meant something, uh, as, as we say. Um, uh, as, as an aside, I'll say that I think in the 20th century, I think maybe Ayn Rand might have known some things that Hayek and Friedman didn't know about people's motives. I think her novelist eye saw that not everyone means well, but I do, I do see in, in, in the uh, fight of ideas why the likes of Friedman and Hayek thought it best to assume that their enemies actually did mean well and uh, merely try to educate them. Um, where the socialists went wrong, uh, mostly, was misunderstanding th this last key element of the classical liberal tradition, uh, the idea that Adam Smith expressed in his wonderful metaphor of the invisible hand. Uh, modern libertarians use the language of Hayek more often, and we kind of highfalutingly call it spontaneous order. And this is the idea that workable, valuable, and wealth-generating orders can and do arise without any visible hand of control ordering the people in the institutions of the world according to a deliberate plan. The socialists misunderstood this and thought that they needed a deliberate plan uh, to make the world a better place. Um, they were mistaken in this, of course, and in that mistake, they were led to creating a, a world, uh, which I'm going to explain to you in a little bit, paraphrasing the words of uh, Benjamin Tucker, uh, one of my favorite 19th century uh, anarchists of the libertarian tradition. Tucker was one of these people who saw himself as a socialist in a way because he thought he was defending the same goals of the state socialists, which was demolishing privilege and making a better world for the common person, but uh, he understood that the socialist approach to this was, uh, was mistaken, uh, and I, I really enjoy the way he kind of goes on and on about this. I, I'm going to tighten it a little bit, but it sort of hits you with the rhythms of exactly how wrong the socialist went. Um, uh, and he, he distinguished the bad socialism as state socialism, and he's said that state socialism is the doctrine that all the affairs of men should be managed by the government regardless of individual choice. Uh, Marx, who he considered the founder of state socialism, concluded that the only way to abolish the monopolies that were keeping the common man down was to centralize and consolidate all industrial and commercial interests, all productive and distributive agencies in one vast monopoly in the hands of the state. The government would then be the banker, the manufacturer, the farmer, the carrier and the merchant, and the, in these capacities must suffer no competition. Uh, this is me again here. I hope as, as I say this, you sort of recognize a little bit of the world that we've ended up in right now. Uh, not, not, not quite to the point where they're banning all competition, but it's interesting to the extent that government is trying to do all of these things that, uh, that Tucker feared socialism would lead to. Uh, back to Tucker, to the, to the individual can belong only the products to be consumed, not the means of producing them. A man can own his clothes and his food, but not the sewing machine that makes his shirts or the spade which digs his potatoes. Society must seize the capital which belongs to it by the ballot if it can, 
by the revolution if it must. Every man will be a wage receiver and the state the only wage payer. Uh, and he summed up where this would all lead to then is, is uh, a state system of medicine by whose practitioners the sick must inevitably be treated. A state system of hygiene, prescribing what all must and must not eat, drink, wear, and do. A state code of morals, which will not content itself with punishing crime, but will prohibit what the majority decide to be a vice. A state system of instruction, which will do away with all private schools, academies, and colleges. And a state nursery, in which all children must be brought up in common at the public expense. Uh, while luckily here in America, I, I don't think any of that has been monopolized by the state. I think we can recognize that the state has at least stuck its hands into all of that. And how did that happen? If, if as I said, America was, was founded on very classical liberal uh, principles, uh, which is, is very true. In fact, American historian Pauline Meyer uh, summed up after her diligent study of pretty much everything that every person in the founding era was reading, thinking, and saying, uh, she summed up that uh, the Declaration of Independence, which she treated as, as the key document summing up the spirit of the Americans of the late 18th uh, century, summarized succinctly ideas defended and explained at greater length by a long list of 17th century writers that included Milton, Algernon Sidney, and John Locke, who continued and developed that Whig tradition, Whig, as Tom told you last night, is sort of another name of the time for the liberal tradition. Uh, by the time of the Revolution, these ideas had become, in their generalized form, captured by Jefferson in the Declaration, a political orthodoxy whose basic principles colonists could pick up from sermons, from newspapers, or even from school books, without ever having to actually read a systematic work of political theory. That, that's a great summation, by the way, of the, the, the task that faces those of us who want to turn the world back in a classical liberal direction, this notion that we have to make these ideas so popular and so widespread that they just become the thing that everyone thinks. And I will say, as someone who has been in this business for a lot of years, a few years, uh, that we have enormously gotten further to that goal than we were when I started in this business, which, which is another encouraging thing to consider. But that's where we began in America, and we've ended up here. And, uh, you know, how did that happen? The, 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 the degeneration of classical liberalism, which survives as what we now call libertarianism into what is now called liberalism, um, is one of the most interesting conundrums of political and ideological history. I, I do not feel like I've ever seen one convincing answer. What I'm going to present to you is sort of a set of answers, none of which are meant to be singular, but sort of a discussion of some of the trends going on from the 1880s to the 1940s, most of them derived from other modern classical liberal libertarian a thinker is about why this might have happened. A, a great book to study this if you want to see it from the beginnings, a book written in 1887 by a uh, sort of Herbert Spencer disciple named Bruce Smith called Liberty and Liberalism, is a marvelous book to read if you want to see someone who's watching it happen around him, getting really upset about it. And uh, one of his theories was that people looked around at the legacy of real liberalism over the course of the 19th and 18th century, the average working man, and they saw, hey, Liberal reforms have benefited me. They've made my life better. My, my corn is cheaper. I can you know, work in more occupations. 
everything's better for me. So liberalism is about making things better for me. And so uh, the, the Regnant ideas in, 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 uh, in British first and then later uh, American politics became the notion that government was not just there to make things better by getting out of the way, which had been the trend for the last couple of centuries, but it should make things better by actively trying to do things. Um, on the more philosophical level, utilitarianism uh, became far more in vogue in the second half of the 19th, first half of the 20th century. Uh, George Smith, a great scholar of liberalism and a teacher to me and, and, and to Tom, uh, sort of posits that the, the French Revolution is a little bit to blame for this, that the French Revolution was seen by many people as kind of the scary place where taking this whole right to revolution, a Lockean thing, uh, natural rights, uh, taking it a little too far, and it scared people. Um, and uh, you know, if, if you're thinking in utilitarian terms, that can lead to a little bit of this sort of scientific hubris. If you figure, okay, it's about making the world a better place, and we smart people can figure out how to make the world a better place, and we can actively shape the world to make things better for people. Again, that's missing the insight of the spontaneous order, and uh, it, it, it gives far more, uh, far more room for control of people's lives than is actually warranted by its own successes. Um, uh, again, on the philosophical level, empiricism got more into vogue, and this whole notion of natural rights started to seem after Gen Jeremy Bentham as like, oh, this is just a silly superstition. It's a, I can't touch a right, you know, what, what right? We don't have any rights. Um, the middle class, uh, which of course was one of the great pushers and benefiters of classical liberalism, uh, had become more entrenched and possibly lost a little bit of their radical edge uh, that they had. Um, in the American context, I've seen some convincing arguments that uh, Protestant pietism uh, became a bit of a problem. You had all these very good, fine Christian people with a sterling do-gooder sense that they were going to reform the world and make it a better place, and they were going to use government as a tool to do that, and this really fed a lot into progressivism in the uh, American context. Um, by the time World War I came around, uh, it was almost over for liberalism in the classic sense. The war itself uh, sort of obviously led to a great deal of wartime centralization, most of which, a lot of which we've never backed down from uh, ever since. It created an enormous sense of cynicism about the world before it, and classical liberalism was a part of that world, so a lot of people just after World War I wanted to wipe their hands of everything that was both good and bad about 19th century liberalism. So in this 1880 to 1940 period, you saw liberalism being attacked, real liberalism, on all sides. You had nationalists and imperialists condemning it for, for essentially being too peaceful. You had socialists attacking it for supporting the, the so-called anarchy of free markets instead of the science of central planning. Uh, church leaders were attacking it because it was too materialistic and egoistic. Um, and uh, Liberalism, of course, had, had been such a great thing for Western culture that for various reasons in the West, these opponents of it never bothered to openly adopt a new term. They just sort of kept calling themselves liberals. They hijacked the term, and they kept it. Um, and uh, Dan Klein, a, an economist in the libertarian tradition, is leading a movement now to try to reclaim it. I, I think it's way too late for that, but uh, it's, you know, it, it's always a good argument starter, at least, if you remind people that you're the real liberal, if they care. Most of them probably don't care. Um, 
So then, uh, of course, the, the Great Depression and World War II kind of cemented in people's minds in America the idea that the free market didn't work. There's so much history behind that, I can't even get into it, but certainly there are convincing explanations from the free market side that it, it's not accurate to blame the free market and the Great Depression. Then there's World War II, which increased uh, war centralization, and, and by that time, no one, we're in the situation that Tom alluded to last night, where if you believed any of this stuff that everyone believed 100 years earlier, you're a complete lunatic. And luckily for us, there were a handful of these complete lunatics who, uh, who didn't give up on these ideas. Uh, you know, great heroines like Ayn Rand, Rose Wilder Lane, Isabel Patterson, heroes like Leonard Reed, uh, founder of the Foundation for Economic Education. And uh, so there were a few people out there who sort of saw the New Deal for what it was, uh, saw the, the, the bad side of, of World War II and, and wartime centralization and they tried to keep alive uh, the liberal tradition. And conservatism uh, arose out of the same ferment. I would argue in the same way that socialism was sort of a, a reaction to, uh, to classical liberalism, uh, conservatism and modern libertarianism were both a reaction to modern liberalism. And if you study the 40s and 50s history of, of this anti-New Deal movement, which I did for my book Radicals for Capitalism, in those early days, uh, the people involved in it didn't necessarily have a sense of a distinction. If you read them in the 40s and 50s, people who we now would look back on as, oh, they were conservative right-wingers, and oh, they were libertarian, sort of saw themselves as part of the same movement. But, but things did arise to distinguish them. And uh, certainly, as I said, conservatism at its best was trying to conserve something it believed was great about the American founding. And if you're doing that, you're gonna have a very big classical liberal libertarian streak. And uh, many of the early conservatives and many current conservatives did. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't carry these ideas in as pure a form as, or as coherent a form as the classical liberals and the libertarians did. They had sort of wound around their libertarianism both a great sense of traditionalism, uh, sometimes rooted in Christianity, um, which led them to believe in state power over, over certain morals and mores uh, that a libertarian or classical liberal might not recognize. Uh, in the historical context in which they arose, they also had a strong dedication to a militaristic anti-communism that left not as much room as a libertarian would like for either a small state at all or for the classical liberal value of peace. Um, in, in sort of practical political reality, of course, we, we all recognize, uh, or probably we all recognize, that a lot of people who call themselves conservatives uh, are, are putting that libertarian streak to the fore. And I think they're encouraging signs, especially in the age of the Tea Party, uh, that that could become more and more true. I think uh, the general sense, even on the part of people who maybe, you know, as I was alluding to early, people who have never read a work of systematic philosophy since the bailouts, I think, uh, upon what you might call the rank and file of people who consider themselves right-wing or conservative, uh, there, there is a streak uh, of anti-government feeling that is stronger than it was 30 years ago. I mean, interestingly, in the 70s and 80s, it was easy to find people who were anti-tax, right? I mean, no one likes to be taxed. I feel like now you're actually even finding people who have gone to being anti-spending, and maybe they're not 
anti-spending on the things that benefit them. That's the problem with not studying systematic philosophy. But uh, I, I, I do think that conservatism as an ally of libertarianism, especially as some of the issues that sort of have separated us, their, their, their dislike of certain bits of cosmopolitan variety in life, whether it has to do with immigration or gay rights or drugs, um, just demographically, I think we're seeing that change. Immigration may be a little less than the other two, but um, the, culturally the culturally conservative aspect of conservatism seems inevitably on the way out, which perhaps will just leave them with that core of libertarianism. I mean, if you look at it, the, the ideas that actually animated conservatism in a political sense from Goldwater to Reagan were the free market libertarian side. Like, that was the interesting stuff. The only actual ideas conservatives had were libertarian ideas, deregulation, tax cuts. Um, e even, I would, you could argue, the way Reagan managed to wind down the Cold War, you might argue, with the specific techniques. But he, he actually did have a vision of peace, uh, which he, he managed uh, to achieve. Um, whereas the socialists, uh, to get back to libertarians, other enemies these days, uh, Hardly anyone calls himself socialist anymore. I would say that people who have what I would recognize as a strong socialist streak tend to call themselves progressives uh, or, or leftists. If you live in sort of the world where you hear these people talk, and I hope a lot of you don't, but you know, I, I do, and uh, you, you will notice really recently, like just in the last maybe even six to 12 months, the, the level of attack aimed from these people, who I'll just call them socialists, even because they are really, um, uh, is, is so enormous. Uh, and their recognition, in the same way that Benjamin Tucker recognized in the 19th century that his free market anarchism was the rival of the Marxists for sort of the same audience. It's like, we're, we're, we're going for this goal of a freer, richer world where the little guy is not oppressed. Uh, Tucker saw that his free market anarchism was the great enemy of the Marxists, and I think ma the Marxists recognize that as well. I think nowadays the progressive socialists are also recognizing that libertarians are their greatest enemy for, for their audience. There are so many things, they, they end up so embedded in modern electoral politics in a way that lots of libertarians don't, that, that they end up sort of handmaidens to the Democratic Party in many cases, and they realize that certain values that they're supposed to stand for, there's you know, civil libertarian values, uh, you know, not destroying the lives of poor innocent people because of the picayune enforcement of idiotic laws, uh, the likes of those. Uh, the libertarian message is, is actually a super appealing to an audience who wants a richer, freer, you know, groovier, whatever you want to call it, world. And, and they know this, and they're scared, and you can, you can see that fear. And, uh, and it's right uh, that they are scared. I, I think, uh, as I alluded to some of the facts of reality that helped shape classical liberalism, uh, larger socioeconomic forces, I think we're seeing a lot of that in the, the digital techno age that we live in, our ability to manage our lives, to communicate, to accomplish goals without requiring uh, state action, I think is becoming more and more manifest to more and more people. Um, this, this doesn't mean that 
we're on the edge of victory, though I think we should be. Um, the, the, the biggest problem, of course, is I think one that Leonard Reed recognized when he started the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, to the extent that we do believe that everyone kind of means well and you know wants people to be rich and wants people to be free, uh, the problem is that the modern liberal, modern socialist, even in some cases modern conservative, looks at the world and sees problems. Maybe that problem is, oh, there's people crossing over the border, or maybe that problem is I see poverty that I don't like, or maybe that problem is I see pollution I don't like, and they, they think that a government forceful solution is needed. Um, modern libertarians and carrying out the classical liberal tradition of tolerance, liberty, and peace have, have, I think, improved and tightened and honed and made more sophisticated the arguments that indicate to a person of goodwill that maybe that's not true. And that if you actually are a person of goodwill enough to not actively want a forceful solution, and I do sometimes wonder about that with some of them, but let's presume that they don't want a forceful solution, that the education and how a world can work uh, to make all of us richer, freer, happier, to the greatest extent that our own choices allow. Um, it's been a 400 plus year project. It's clearly not over yet, um, but I do think we're living in, in a technological age that makes a lot of those things easier and a lot of those ideas, especially the idea of spontaneous order, the idea of how things, can, things services, goods, ways of thought can and do, arise without a boss imposing it makes me optimistic. Because no matter how much the actions of the modern megastate from the late 19th century to now have violated the great principles of liberalism, have stepped beyond a proper respect for peace, for free trade, for allowing humans to make their own autonomous choices in life, However bad it's gotten, uh, I do want to end by reminding you where I began, that these classical liberal slash libertarian ideas have shaped the modern world, this room we're in, what we're doing here this week, in core and vital ways. And, and, and the, the quest to perfect these ideas continues to hold a powerful pull on the human spirit. Why else would you all be listening to me talk at you about this stuff for 40 minutes after a great dinner? Um, and uh, I'm going to close with a great quote uh, by Friedrich Hayek that has always, since I encountered it when I was 17, sort of summed up what I think the best way to actuate keeping the spirit of classical liberalism dominant over its opponents, uh, socialism and conservatism. Uh, he wrote in his essay, The Intellectuals and Socialism, what we lack is a liberal utopia, a program which is neither a mere defense of things as they are, it's not conservative, um, nor a diluted kind of socialism, but a truly liberal radicalism, which does not spare the susceptibilities of the mighty, including the trade unions, Hayek said as an aside, which is not too severely practical, and which does not confine itself to what seems today as politically possible. We need intellectual leaders who are willing to work for an ideal, however small may be the prospects of its early realization. They must be men and women, who are willing to stick to principles and to fight for their full realization, however remote, the practical compromises they must leave to the politicians. I hope some of what I said or, and the other things that you're hearing this week will inspire you to be some of those kind of intellectuals, defenders of 
the great notions of freedom. I thank you for listening, and I believe we can now have a conversation of sorts, or someone will take questions. Is there, are there mics? I was told there'd be mics. There. So, um, thank you. Um, your optimism about um, the present state of libertarianism in terms of uh, uh, resonating with more people may well be correct, but I get a little worried. Um, uh, there's a lady named Elizabeth Warren who um, is a presently a, um, a kind of a media darling, it seems. Her um, 11 commandments, I just sort of went through them, and at least five of them create uh, positive rights that uh, would require somebody else to pay for them. So basically, anti-liberal and uh, confiscatory. And her um, um, summation of conservative philosophy, which obviously is not quite the same as libertarianism, but the closest we'll get in the mainstream, uh, she summed it up dismissively as, quote, um, I got mine, the rest of you are on your own. Um, and this gets put out there without a lot of um, uh, criticism, but in fact gets uh, um, hailed um, uh, as being uh, good. Uh, the term, uh, um, you know, she's viewed as a uh, progressive and uh, that's somehow a good thing. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, this sort of fits in with the, um, uh, the concept that um, uh, eternal vigilance is certainly the price of liberty. Uh, right now I think we need to be vigilant that um, uh, you know, these sort of people are out there and are presently gaining in popularity and that um, uh, you know, we all have the ability to write letters and uh, letters to the editor and to talk to our friends and such, but uh, these people are out there and are a threat. Unquestionably, and if Elizabeth Warren uh, is elected president next year, next year, two years, then uh, my short-term optimism is, is, is obviously wrong. Uh, I, I don't believe that that's going to happen. And, and even if that does happen, by the way, I, I, I think Leonard Liggio taught me this. He, he said that the classical liberal needs to be a, you know, he can be a short-term pessimist, but he must and ought to be a long-term optimist. Because if we're not all wrong, like if we're actually right about any of these things we believe, uh, then the, 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 the size fiscal size, responsibility size of modern government in the United States um, won't be able uh, to continue. And hopefully it can stop in a, in a nice, sensible glide path and not in a, a really horrible uh, mess. But like I, because I believe in the tenets of classical liberalism, I actually, you know, I believe that the violation of them egregiously forever can't go on, but also because I'm a student of history, I don't, I, I don't think that the liberal utopia that Hayek alluded to is, is achievable once and for all. Um, you know, people, you know, there's always going to be people who, you know, want to commit crime, right? And government, in, in some senses, is, is, is organized crime. So the, 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 the urge to over-governing is, is, is not going to go away. And yeah, it's, eternal vigilance is probably the best way to put it. But uh, in that eternal vigilance, it's, I think, both true to the ideals of classical liberalism and just really better for your morale if you believe 
that it's possible. Like there's 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 no point in, in looking at Elizabeth. You know, you can look at Elizabeth Warren, look at Rand Paul, both of whom are kind of rising in popularity in the same way, and go, oh, it's going to be Elizabeth Warren, and and, and that's awful. But um, and if it is, it will be awful, of course. Uh, but uh, yeah, you're you're correct. You're correct to, to be very worried about that. But uh, yeah, I'm. Yeah, I don't know what to say. <laughs> uh, am I picking? Yeah, okay. When classical liberalism uh, first hit the earthly scene, uh, it offered immediate improvement in the material life of a whole lot of people. Therefore, it was a relatively easy sell. Today in America, when one promotes libertarianism, you're asking a whole lot of people to, to give up things. stuff. Yep. And the sale becomes much more difficult. Absolutely. And what's interesting is, who are the torch barriers, torch bearers today? They're the immigrants who are again moving to, because libertarianism, America, offers an improvement. It's a very difficult sell, and my question is, how do we do it when we are asking a whole lot of people to give up immediate material benefits in favor of something which is very theoretical, yeah. which is liberty? It's a really hard sell, and how do we do it? Uh, we have a good start in, in things that, at least in the America I grew up in, I'm in my mid-40s, you know, the... The, the very essence of what we call the American dream, that you can rise up from your bootstraps, work hard, obtain property, work in your chosen field, succeed, like that's classical liberalism right there. The American dream is pure classical liberalism. Uh, so we have a great cultural start, and as you said, people come here uh, to pursue that. Yeah, I, I didn't say it would be easy. Of course it's not easy. Um, and that's kind of that particular point about letting people understand that, okay, maybe it's okay that you give up the thing that you think you get from government because, you know, markets can create wealth and markets can provide needs. It's a sophisticated argument that most people don't understand, and that's why we come to things like this and think about these ideas and hash them out and figure out how to convince them. It's all, to me, it's all, I learned this from Leonard Reed, not directly, it's all like one mind to one mind. I mean, I... I just look at my own life and I knew I, I didn't used to believe this and I thought about things and I read things and people said things to me and made me read things and I came to understand it. So I believe that it is possible. Um, I also, as I alluded to, I, you know, then I read a lot of Ayn Rand and I started to think that you know, maybe not everyone wants a free world <laughs> where people succeed and I, I think that's true as well. Uh, so. Um, I guess all I'm gonna say is I agree with you. It's really hard. It's always been really hard. But like you're, you know, we're probably both of the age. I hope you recognize, and I know it's true, that far more people understand and believe this stuff now than did 10, 20, 30 years ago. So that makes me hopeful. I've uh, noticed that no mention has been made yet of the 900-pound gorilla in the room, which is essentially the debt-based monetary system we have that is controlled by a group of less-than-savory people in order, like the popularis of ancient Rome, to buy votes, create this false sense of prosperity that's ultimately going to collapse and leave 
several future generations in Hawk. Classical liberalism produced wealth. It produced a, a healthy society that was a mecca to the world. We're living on, like Max, the prodigal son, maxing our American Express, paying it with Visa. How do, you, how do you feel we can get out from under this? Because this is truly a realistic dark cloud. Yeah, I, I kind of alluded in my answer to the first, first gentleman that there's, there could be an easy way out of this and there could be a really hard way out. The, the heart of the hard way out is pretty much what we were alluding to. I'll say a couple of things to that. I have thought and think roughly what you just expressed since about 1979 when I first sort of thought, oh, this is what our monetary system is all about. That said, um, I've thought that it was all going to come tumbling down ever since, and uh, it hasn't yet. Um, so there's that. And second of all, it's not, the wealth of the world is real. Like, it's, you know, monetary collapse, debt collapse, that changes who we say owns things, but it does not actually, uh, this is all very heady stuff, but the things of the world, like our, our ability, people's ability to wake up in the morning and grow food and ship food and transport food. And, you know, this is, again, just comes from the classical liberal in me that I do believe spontaneous orders work. And I do believe, I mean, we've seen, you know, this sounds really Pollyannish because, of course, to live through it is going to be pretty miserable. But uh, in the history of mankind on planet Earth, it'll be okay. Like, we're not going to lose our buildings. We're not going to lose our roads. We're not going to lose our machines. We're not going to lose our knowledge. It's just the current way we count who has what and who owns what is going to change. So I look to that possibility with sort of three thoughts in mind. One, that maybe I'm wrong. Uh, two, that, boy, that's going to be miserable, but see, you know, human life on Earth and civilization will will likely survive. And, and to go back to what I said earlier, at a, at a certain point, not being optimistic about this stuff, while also being personally prudent to, you know, to the degree that you want to protect your assets and your wealth, I, I don't think does anyone any good, so. Anyone? Back uh, corner there. There's a large group of religious in the, in the country, especially this country still, and where do you see that group fitting in? Because they get a lot of solace and inspiration from religion, and yet uh, you hear the right wing and the left wing, the, the liberals, the socialists, and libertarians uh, poo-poo the ideas, et cetera, and try to uh, distance themselves from them sometimes. Yeah. Uh, where do you see that all, that all fitting together? Yeah, th th there is no reason at all that the religious in the conventional Western sense need be enemies of libertarianism at all. I mean, as a fact of culture, many of them are, just for the same reason that many Americans are. I think it's the same problem of lack of education. I certainly think... Classical liberalism actually does have a bit of a anti-clerical tradition in it because it arose in a world where you actually, it actually was kind of important to be anti-clerical. In, in the modern world, I certainly see no percentage in libertarian or classical liberalism having an animus toward religion or the religious. Um, following that way of life uh, in a consistent way, it creates communities that can and ought to be healthy self-sufficient, um, that 
canon ought to be charitable, and private charity, of course, is, is going to be a key part of, of the winding down uh, of the welfare state. Uh, I, I, I hope that the religious don't perceive libertarianism as being against them and against their interests in some sort of fundamental way. I, I don't think there's any reason uh, for that to be the case. Uh, sure. Uh, there. Um, well, you had uh, alluded a little bit to the fact that on certain social issues and uh, things of that nature, that the Republican Party with time was going to come more in line with uh, traditionally classically liberal ideas. Um, I guess I, I, I agree with you demographically that it has to be, but in a and I, and I agree with you in general that optimism is is very warranted in the uh, in trying to look at the world. Um, but as a uh, as a young person, um, the fact that uh, <clears throat> there's not really anyone out there supporting uh, gay rights in a in a ser in a serious concerted way or uh, things of that nature um, make me somewhat more skeptical. I guess, and I think that the religious right in general. Um, so many of them hold on very strong. I guess I'm, I'm asking you to convince me that it's coming sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I would say I, I don't have any evidence that there's enough of those people. You know, it's interesting that the world of social networking, right, I do spend a lot of your sort of communication time in that world. Yeah, um, I do more than I should. And it's, it's eye-opening in, in, in a kind of terrifying way for me, actually, because you sort of, you get, to hear the sort of chatter, like for various reasons, I have widespread communities of communication, only about a quarter of which are from the libertarian world. So I just am exposed to all sorts of really terrifying ways that people think, which is why that, that, that I, I sort of brought up a couple of times that little dark edge of Rand in me where I really do, I, I feel like if I can convince you that like we could do this without force like isn't that great and I there's a lot of people who don't think it's great there's a lot of people who really want to force people to do things it's unfortunate but um and they're the but I I don't think they're a majority I mean you're never you know Milton Friedman to drop a name said this to me when I dangled on his knee as a, as a tot um <laughs> not exactly he said all of every fight is forever if you look back in the history of human social change, all the same good ideas, all the same bad ideas, they, they, none of them go away, some of them become more dominant, and I have every reason to think that the bad ideas, whether it be the religious right kind of bad ideas or the kind of progressive, let's punish the successful and force people to do things, I think all that, they're not going to go away, but I, I, I think the, that sort of the zeitgeist of what most people tend to think I think is moving in a libertarian direction and I think can move much more in a libertarian direction. I, I'll repeat what I said earlier. The greatest sort of spiritual benefit of studying intellectual history is seeing that absolutely things change and they change enormously. Uh, and if you're in the game of wanting to change things, which I, I probably most of us are, that's a super encouraging thing to know. Thank you all so much. Thank you very much, Brian. Um, I'd like to add one quick thought to that, very interesting meditation, because you ended on a really important note, 
that every fight is forever. That we keep fighting the same battles, and I often run into people who say, oh my God, how can this be? And I say, get used to it. It's going to be that way for the next 10,000 years. Uh, and that is that the same fallacies and the same arguments will come up over and over and over and over. Why do we need a market economy? Can't we just go and do the right thing? Why can't government do that? Et cetera, et cetera. And we have to remind them of the broken window fallacy. We have to remind them of what is seen and what is not seen that Bastiat talked us about, uh, told us about. And it will never end. So for all of you under 30 here, uh, this is a little wake-up moment. Uh, you will run into the same dumb arguments for the rest of your life. <laughs> and that's just the way it is. But the thought that I'd like to end on was something I heard uh, Friedrich Hayek say. And uh, he gave a lecture. He was rather advanced in age, and he was working on his very last book in his 80s. It came out in his 90s. And he gave a wonderful formal lecture, and someone asked a question. It doesn't really matter what the question was, uh, but Hayek said, in this wonderful Austrian-British accent he had, he said, I gather from the form of your question you believe such and such. And the fellow said, well, yes, that's right. And then Hayek said, I also was of this opinion for about 50 years. But I've been thinking about it a great deal lately, and I think it was a fundamental mistake. And I thought, I want to be like him. <laughs> uh, willing to think about things, willing to read critics, willing to read people who disagree with you and take them seriously, and being open to revising your ideas if you think you've come across a, a better argument. And I think that is a healthier approach to dealing with the misery of having to address the same arguments over and over for the rest of your life. Now, a little bit of housekeeping. If you have misplaced your black satchel or brown cap, please see the registration desk. Breakfast will begin promptly at 8 o'clock here in the Renardo patio, and we'll start with a presentation at 9. Please take all of your stuff with you because the room will be all switched around. Uh, for the morning presentation. And we'll be meeting uh, in the bar. See you later. <laughs>